Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. If you are tuning in through Spotify or iTunes, thank you for joining us. If you're on YouTube, you can see that big new YouTube subscribe button on the screen. That's to remind you to subscribe to the channel. If you're watching here on YouTube, just below the screen here, you'll see that big red subscribe button. Do not forget to click the bell for continuing notifications. Guys, I have uh, uh, my church's website, victorybaptistkc.org. Up there you can see, and it's through that website that you can access our sermon audio channel, and you can get all of the teaching series of our church, um, the sermons, and so on. So that's just a, another resource for you all to tap into. And then, of course, we have the thebaptistbroadcast.com. There's the blog and you know a few other things. You can listen to the podcast on there as well. Um, today we've got kind of a big episode. I don't know how long it's going to take us. It's not my intent to spend a whole lot of time here, but you know, you never know when you have three sets of 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 three questions, the last set having four questions, 10 questions in total uh to get through, you don't know, right? But I think what what's important to 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 note is that this 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 episode is um an episode that is going to address the relationship between philosophy and theology. I'm going to try to be orderly here. There are a lot of things related to this question because much ink has been spilled trying to address this relationship, whether or not a relationship should even exist between the two, whether philosophy is even a lawful engagement for the Christian to participate in. Um, a lot of confusion as to what philosophy even is. A lot of confusion as to what theology even is, really. Um, but... Um, I'm going to try to try to be orderly here and and as systematic as possible. And I I want to begin by prefacing that uh, in our day and age, it's in vogue to collapse the sciences. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's take the science of philosophy and the natural sciences, for example. And you have the materialist who tries to answer philosophical, metaphysical questions with their tools according to the naturalistic sciences or the natural sciences. So you have people like Richard Dawkins, who's a biologist, right? And he tries to answer uh, questions of ultimacy, questions of origin, uh, questions of formal causality with the tools that he's been taught in order to address the natural science of biology. And that's a that's an example of collapsing two sciences, namely the, the science of philosophy with the science, the, the, the formal science of uh, natural science of biology into one another. He's trying to he, in in that in the conflation of those two sciences, Dawkins, someone like Dawkins, is trying to take the tools that are proper really only to a a study of a natural science like biology, and he's trying to investigate higher order uh, higher ordered uh, concepts, uh, forms, universals um, than what his tools allow him to be able to investigate, and 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 w as a result. He ends up coming up with all sorts of erroneous, false, and just outrightly goofy conclusions. Um, that's an extreme example because you have an atheist on the one hand who who is a materialist to the core and and um, and is is infected with the mindset of scientism or positivism, 
and uh, and and you know addresses philosophical questions accordingly. Um, and so we can see the obvious flaw in that. Um, but this happens more subtly even amongst Christians, right? People who aren't atheists, people who aren't naturalists, uh, people who aren't materialists, who yet conflate sciences. And the two sciences I want to suggest have been conflated in the recent history of, of Christianity are the sciences of philosophy and theology. Those two should be distinct sciences because they have two distinct formal objects. The formal object of philosophy is being qua being or something like metaphysics, ontology. And then the formal object of theology is God and all things in relation to God. So they have two distinct formal objects, but you can see how they can, uh, they can overlap to some extent in terms of their material object. Because when you say something about God, you end up saying something about the nature of the world, the, the nature of, of his effects, right? You, 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 uh, you know, going back to the scholastic period and classical theology, there, there's something of, you know, the effects um, coming from the cause, you know, bear witness to their causes, right? Or to their cause. And so, um, and so obviously when you say something about creation or when you say something about God, it's, 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 it's possible that if you're saying things about creation as a philosopher, you're also going to say things that have implications on theology, right? And so there is a relationship to, to, between the two materially, but their formal objects, what they actually endeavor to study and the tools that they employ in order to study those objects are, you know, distinct and should remain distinct. All right, so... With that being said, that very important qualifying preface, I think, needed to be needed to be brought out. Um, I have, I, like I said, I have three sets of questions here, and the 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 three sets are titled accordingly. First, we're going to look at the ethics of doing philosophy. Then we're going to look at the philosophy and the relationship of philosophy to theology, or just philosophy and theology. And then we're going to look at the pagan world and philosophy. And the questions under each of these headings are going to help us hopefully make some careful distinctions and appropriate different concepts and, 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 and also see the right relationship between philosophy and theology in doing so. So, a lot of Christians have argued, I'd say over the last 200 years, really before the Enlightenment, um, and before the Enlightenment really took hold over the last 200, 250 years, um, Christians were not so, um, I guess, skeptical about the employment of philosophy in theology along with theology as a help to those who do theology. Um, and, and so there was a lot less um, antagonism concerning philosophy, I think, before the last 250 years or so, 200, 250 years. And so a lot of Christians since that time, uh, following, you know, uh, the, the skepticism and the, the kind of empiricism that you find in, in, in Hume and then Kant, uh, since that time, Christianity has grown increasingly antagonistic toward philosophy. And when I say Christianity, I, I, I don't mean the formal objects of the, the, the formal uh, articles of the faith, but Christians have become increasingly antagonistic toward philosophy and that 
that's a reactionary mindset as the result of as a result of the of the enlightenment so the first set of questions is going to be under the heading of the ethics of doing philosophy and we're essentially asking here is it even right to do philosophy as a christian or is the christian sinning by engaging any kind of philosophy okay so the first the first sub-question to that overarching question of this section, the ethics of doing philosophy, is, is philosophy lawful for the Christian to engage in? And um, a lot of people at this point, when, when trying to answer this question, will turn to texts like Colossians 2, 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says, writing to the church at Colossae, he says, beware lest anyone cheat you rob you, um, you know, another way you could, you, could, you could put it would be like take you captive or plunder you, you know, leave you desolate. Um, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. And they'll see that phrase and they'll, that, 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 that phrase and they'll say, look, Paul's obviously antagonistic toward philosophy. And they'll, and they'll take that term philosophy as it's used in, in verse 8 and they'll, they'll universalize it to where it applies to all philosophy anytime, anywhere. Um, which we can't do that because if we go on and read the rest of, of the verse, it will become abundantly clear to us that Paul's talking about a particular kind of philosophy, namely that of the sophists. So beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. There's a relationship between this philosophy that Paul's talking about and empty deceit. And so that there's, there's already a specification here as to what Paul is getting at. And then he says, this philosophy and empty deceit is according to the tradition of men. So these are things that have been inceived in the minds and imaginations of men, which if the Christian engages in them, is at risk of departing from the truth. So by definition, this philosophy here and this empty deceit here is obviously contrary to what is true. Um, this, you know, it's not only contrary to the articles of the Christian faith, but by the same token, this would be something that would be contrary to proper mathematics. This would be some, this could be something that's contrary to uh, natural sexual ethics. This is something that's contrary to. Um, you know, um, you know, natural truths that are accessible to all men everywhere at all times. And so this is, this is, uh, uh, sophistry. Sophistry are really bad arguments dressed up to look like good arguments through rhetoric. And so this isn't, this isn't the formal, uh, this isn't talking here about the formal object of philosophy, it's not here talking about the formal science of philosophy. Paul here is denoting a very specific kind of philosophy. This is philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. All right, so a lot of times what, what people would do in the ancient world is they would, of course, their their philosophies are all corrupt because their 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 systems are corrupt because they're they're idolaters, right? They may have true principles, they may have true knowledge, um, you know, kind of scattered throughout their system, but their system their systematic conclusions as to what they as to what they've actually come to believe and hold to be the truth are false and idolatrous things, and oftentimes 
it's it's couched in in you know uh, language of the natural order. Think about sun worship, moon worship. Um, think about the uh, you know the astrology of the ancient world and the kind of uh, pantheism that that existed in some places of the world as well. And this can refer to elements of the world. Uh, it can refer to it can refer to elements of the world as basic as you know. The, the 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 heavenly luminaries or something like that you know it's it doesn't this isn't this isn't this this is these could be true things that are used in order to formulate a a, a sophistry of deceit empty deceit um, and so that's the point that Paul's getting at here he's not saying that the sun and the moon are false and are a bunch of liars and they don't witness to the creator whatsoever. He's not saying that the, the rains that God sends on man, uh, both the wicked and the righteous are, is, are fault is false. And that the witness from such providential wonders are, are false as well. Right? Because Paul points to the witness of God's providence in places like Acts 14, for example. So he's obviously not saying that he's, he's talking about something that's more specific than that. He's talking about he's talking about according to the basic principles of the world. Like this is all that there is. The the Greek atomists, for example, were kind of like modern day materialists, and that this you know atoms they're 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 doing they're, again they're conflating sciences in the ancient world, and they're trying to investigate ultimate metaphysical questions. Um, by engaging in natural science, um, that's that's what's that's what's happening in the ancient world, um, and so that's what Paul has in mind here. And 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 there are a lot of people who are who are at risk of being deceived by such things, especially in especially in in the first century, the context that this letter was written. And so Paul's saying that there's a specific kind of philosophy. There's there's a a, uh, a a philosophy that has been invented by men. Um, that kind of philosophy, stay away from. Be careful. Be circumspect. Be discerning. This philosophy is not in accord. It's not consistent with Christ. It contradicts the articles of the faith. So here's another thing that I would like to like to bring up that while the formal object of philosophy will not will not uh, will not give us the uh, the articles of the Christian religion, Trinity, gospel, incarnation, things like that, doctrine of the church, and so on and so forth. While they those 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 uh, the the object of philosophy or metaphysics will not you know a natural uh, a study of natural theology for example will not give us a a knowledge of the articles of the faith it cannot provide us with knowledge unto redemption yet the scholastics would say and and I think we all should be saying that those natural um, those natural principles and conclusions will nevertheless not contradict the articles of the faith because truth cannot contradict truth, right? So the truth we perceive through nature under the science of philosophy can never con contradict the truth we receive through scripture 
under the science of theology, if that makes sense. And here Paul is saying that this empty deceit, this sophistry, is contradicting the articles of the, of the faith. It's not consistent with the articles of the faith and ought to be therefore rejected. Whereas true natural philosophy will give way to, to truths engendered in creation as a result of our God creating this world. Because the fingerprints of our God, the fingerprints of the cause of this world, is going to be all over this world. So the natural truth, truth, I say, not natural falsehood, but natural truth will never contradict the truth in theology. All right. Um, so they're, they're not one and the same thing, but they're also not going to con contradict one another. They are complementary of one another. So is philosophy lawful for the Christian? And I would say, yes, it absolutely is. Um, and, and I would say that Colossians 2.8, contrary to outlawing philosophy altogether, actually demands that we know it. It demands that we know a true philosophy because the only way to discern between truth, true philosophy and false philosophy and empty deceit would be to know the true philosophy so that you can compare, right? So that you can contrast those two things, true and false philosophy. Um, okay, so is, is philosophy lawful for the Christian? There's nothing in Colossians 2.8 that says it's unlawful for the Christian because you have to read the verse in context and you have to read the verse understanding uh, what Paul's, you have to read the whole verse. It's not just Colossians 2.8a, it's Colossians 2.8. Right. And this is a philosophy that's obviously in contradiction to the articles of the faith and ought to be rejected. Um, so, no, philosophy is not unlawful for the Christian. It is absolutely lawful for the Christian. The next question is, is it wise for the Christian to engage philosophy? Is it wise for the Christian to engage philosophy. Remember uh, what the definition of philosophy is. I mean, if you're just going by the etymology of the term, it's a love of wisdom, right? It's a love of wisdom. So is it wise for the Christian to search out philosophy? Maybe philosophy isn't morally wrong, but some might make the argument that it's unwise to go that direction because you might be distracted from the truth of, of Christianity, and I do not think you can get that upon a full reading of the text of Scripture. In fact, I would say Scripture itself teaches the exact opposite. If you look, for example, at Proverbs 4-5, and of course we have typological significance here that looks forward to things more having to do with the articles of the faith, but that doesn't... That doesn't uh, abrogate the principle that we see in, in texts like Proverbs 4-5. The exhortation, the admonishment, the encouragement is to get wisdom, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. All right, so the idea here is that we as Christians should love wisdom. And a lot of the things that are covered in, in Proverbs are not things that are specially revealed only through Scripture. They're things that Scripture assumes and teaches also. So we would call those mixed articles of faith, things which are natural things which are, you know, something we might call common sense. There's a lot of common sense in the Proverbs. Um, 
that scripture rather assumes and doesn't really teach for the first time, but necessary, but actually re- repeats natural truths, common sense, common truths that scripture, you know, ascends to and approves of and repeats throughout the pages of a book like Proverbs. Um, and so a lot of the understanding and a lot of the wisdom that would be uh, understood to be wisdom in the book of Proverbs are things that, uh, you know, are things that people who had never read scripture before could actually could actually understand and 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 follow and apply in their lives. All right, a lot of it is common sense, what we call common sense. All right, so um, the exhortation here, the admonishment here is: get wisdom, get understanding. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forget Proverbs four seven. Just a couple verses later, says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all your getting, get understanding. Understand it, apply it, know it, become familiar with it. Um, buy the truth and do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. Proverbs 23, 23, 23. So there is you could argue what the what the wisdom is here. You could you could try to to try and have a specific definition of the wisdom here. I would say that it would be more consistent with understanding this is all truth. Um, because all truth is God's truth, so get that truth, get that wisdom. Um, but even if you did argue for a specific understanding of the wisdom here in Proverbs, that doesn't change the outcome of the implication, right? The implication is it's good for Christians to get wisdom. It's wise for Christians to engage wisdom. And therefore, you know, philosophy, the love of wisdom, it's wise for Christians to be philosophers, as it were. Christians should be philosophers, right? That's all philosophy is, the love of wisdom. Now, have men invented systems and called those systems philosophy? Yes. And are are many of those systems wrong? Absolutely. Should those systems be rejected? Yes. Should the... Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. We're going to we're going to need to to dive into that here in a moment. There are questions relevant to those questions that we'll ask here in a second. And so the next question in this in this section in this part is is it necessary for the Christian to engage philosophy? Is it next necessary for the Christian to engage philosophy? Maybe it's So so in other words, you have a person who's 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 saying is they say yeah, philosophy is lawful for the Christian. Um, and it's even wise if the Christian wants to engage philosophy, the Christian can do that. And and perhaps if they're called to do it, they they should do it. This question is a lot more. Um, this question is a lot more. It, it's it's heavier than those questions because this question is now dealing with whether or not the Christian is obligated or whether or not the Christian is constrained to deal with philosophy. All Christians everywhere. All right. Now, first, before we before I answer this question or try to answer this question, we have to understand that aptitude comes into the picture, people's time, their schedules, their responsibilities, their, their priorities, you know, all of that comes into the scripture or comes into the picture, um, their life circumstances, etc. All of that comes into the picture when we're trying to answer this question. And so obviously in the Christian's getting of wisdom, not every Christian is going to look the same. Right. And and there's a there's liberty in terms of the pursuit of wisdom and so on and so forth. This question has more to do with whether or not the, the Christian inevitably engages philosophy in their theologizing. And my answer to that question is yes. Yes, the Christian inevitably engages philosophy 
in their in their theologizing, in their in their doing doctrine, they're studying doctrine, they're 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 even unwittingly employing philosophy. And so to to an extent, philosophy, you can't get away from it because philosophy is dealing with the most fundamental questions of the world, right? That arise from from the reality of, of this world. And so, for example, being. All Christians assume being, right? Um, you could not do theology apart from an assumption that there is, right? There is something rather than nothing. Um, so, so all Christians assume there's something rather than nothing. A lot of Christians would look at you when you when you when you make that observation. They'd say, "Duh, duh. yeah, there's something rather than nothing." I mean, I exist. The world around me exists, and so on and so forth. God exists. So there's something rather than nothing. So, but that's a philosophical assumption, right? Um, the rules of language, grammar. Those are, you know, uh, the the correspondence of language to reality, the correspondence of thought and knowledge to reality. Those are all philosophical assumptions that are being assumed in the Christians' theologizing, right? And so, it's in, it's inevitable that the Christian should engage philosophy in the project of doing theology. The other thing I would say is, is to take that a step further. I don't think the Christian only assumes unwittingly philosophy. I think this, the, the Christian, all Christians actually engage positively and, and, and cognitively, consciously with philosophy. So for example, whenever you start talking about the two natures of the one person of Christ, Right, you're using philosophical language to help you speak about the doctrine of the incarnation, the 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 language of nature, for example, um, and and how those natures relate to the one person of Christ, how how we need to see those natures in relation to His person, right? You employ philosophy, philosophical categories, philosophical terminology, person, natures, um, hypos, hypostasis in 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 our language about the hypostatic union between those natures and the one person of Christ. What about the Trinity? The word Trinity is a, is a, is a term that is not found in the scriptures and so not revealed specially uh, through special revelation, but is a term that has been employed in order to help us speak about something that has been revealed in special revelation, namely the Trinity, namely the Trinity, the actual Trinity, God in one, right? Um, the one, the single one, numerically one divine essence that subsists eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we use, we employ, though theology and philosophy are distinct sciences, we employ philosophy to help us talk about and construe the high mysteries of the faith that Scripture has indeed revealed to us if that makes sense. So it's it's actually inevitable that the Christian should approach and engage philosophy. It's inevitable in that they assume it in their even uh, approaching scripture to read scripture, to do theology of any kind, but it's also, it's also necessary that they employ it in how they speak about God, right? You look at the Reformed Confessions, like the Second London Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and you look in, in chapter 2, uh, of I believe all three of those, and you have you have a lot of language that is extra biblical language, but it's language that coheres with Scripture and is consistent with the subject matter of Scripture, 
but it's philosophical terminology essentially is what it is, helping us to talk about uh, theology, right? Helping us to better articulate our theology. So, you know, for example, I'll just read the the first paragraph here of uh, chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity in the Second London Confession. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. Subsistence is not a biblical word. It's a biblical word in the sense that it jives with Scripture. It it coheres with Scripture. It's consistent with Scripture. It's not contrary to Scripture, but it itself is not revealed in Scripture. The concept of subsistence or a subsistent thing is not is not found necessarily or explicitly in Scripture. It's found necessarily from the subject matter of Scripture, but it's not found explicitly in the text of Scripture. So here we have a philosophical concept that helps us, or philosophical term that helps us to articulate biblical truth. All right. So the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being, being, and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. So I, I emphasize some of the language there that is philosophical in nature and is being brought in as a handmaiden to help us talk about profound truth profound theological truth, whether that theology can be discerned through nature or whether it's revealed only through scripture um, is another question. Uh, but but nevertheless, this is philosophy being brought in to help us articulate theology, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's the first section. The ethics of doing philosophy. Yes, not only can Christians do philosophy, not only is it wise for Christians to do philosophy, but it's actually necessary for Christians to engage in philosophy, either unwittingly or explicitly when they're actually doing the task of theology. The next section is philosophy and theology. We've already hinted at the relationship between philosophy and theology, that philosophy is a handmaiden to theology. But how does that play out more? And we're going to answer that with this first question. What is the relationship between philosophy and theology? So, I mentioned at the beginning that philosophy and theology are two distinct sciences. But I use that word distinct intentionally. I don't use that word distinct to indicate a separation and isolation of those two sciences from one another. They are distinct but they are not separate. They cannot be separated. Can you do philosophy without doing theology? Yes. Can you do theology without doing philosophy? No. Okay. Um, so, what is the relationship between philosophy and theology? If they're distinct, how do they relate? Right? So, that's, that's kind of what we're getting at here. If they're distinct, how do they relate? Um... Maybe it's best to, to use an illustration. Digging a hole is distinct from the shovel, right? I mean, obviously, the, the act of digging a hole is distinct from the shovel that is used to dig the hole, all right? But they're not separated either. Uh, the shovel is an instrument that can be used to help in the 
in the act of digging the hole. You don't have to use a shovel, um, but you do use a shovel because it's helpful. Um, and, 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 and let me say this, actually, this is, this is better because I, I do actually think that you have to engage philosophy to an extent to do theology. So you, you don't have to use a shovel but you do have to use some means or some instrument to dig the hole. It has to either be your hands, it has to be a shovel, or it has to be some kind of excavating piece of machinery. Um, you, you have to use something to dig the hole. You're, you're not God, so you can't just speak the hole into existence, right? We are bound as creatures to using instruments. Um, and so in, 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 when we're talking about the relationship of philosophy to theology— Theology is a distinct thing. Theology is a distinct science, um, but we use philosophy as an instrument, as creatures, to talk about theology better, right? To talk about and think about theology better, in a way that is better. So, and, and, and let me say this, that, that both philosophy and theology, and the subject matter of both, and, we, and we're talking, we're assuming true philosophy and true theology— are things that God has given us, right? So it's not as if you're departing from what God has given us to something that God hasn't given us, and you're using something that God hasn't given us to give us something, to, 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 to help us understand something that God indeed has given us. In other words, we're not just using something that was invented by man or something like that in order to understand something that God has given us as if, as if whatever God has given us is not sufficient. Um, but we're using something over here that God has given us to help us understand and talk about something over here that God has also given us, right? That this can't give us that we need in order to, uh, in, in order to know something other and higher than what this alone can give us. Um, hopefully that's kind of a helpful explanation of how philosophy and theology relate to one another. Um, they relate to one another as, as an instrument relates to... Um, the, the achieving the goal, right? So if my goal is to talk about theology in a more sophisticated way, in a more understanding way, then I'm going to employ philosophy in that task as an instrument. So that we can both say that philosophy is, is really something that you have to employ to one extent or another, either unwittingly or wittingly, um, in in our theologizing, but we we also don't we're we're also not bound to say that philosophy is the ground of theology because it's not. Philosophy doesn't explain theology in in that sense. It's not its cause. It's not its foundation. But we bring it as a helpful instrument to talk about theology. Okay, so hopefully we've made the the proper distinction there. And I think there are biblical examples of this. I think how Paul engages uh, the philosophers in Acts seventeen. Paul is Paul is Paul is using philosophy in Acts 17 to do theology and to present theology to the philosophers in Acts 17. He obviously doesn't do the same thing with the Jews um, in Acts 14, but he but he does so with the Areopagites in Acts 17. Um, Romans 1, I think, is an example uh, of how there is a distinction between, you know, natural philosophy, which we would put under philosophy, uh, to an extent, uh, and and there's a distinction between that and and the articles of the faith. On the other hand, where you have you know pagans who are able to perceive something about God and know something about God in Romans one, 
Um, and that's their, that's their, you know, there's, there's, there's a true philosophy there that, that, um, can, can actually result in a natural theology. Um, but we know that they get that knowledge and then they hate it and they suppress it and all sorts of other ethical things that they do in their sin. Um, but there's a distinction between that, for example, and Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, you know, in justification by faith alone, the work of Christ, and so on and so forth, how man is made right before God. All right, so you see the distinction, all right, in Scripture all over the place, I think. So what are some examples of philosophy as a preparation for theology? Does philosophy prepare Christians to do theology? Um The been a lot of people who who been a lot of theologians in the past, and this is this is kind of an old you know this is kind of an old tradition in the Reformed, uh, and and actually the the opinions are mixed. If you, if you look at someone like Turretin, yes. If you look at someone like Calvin, probably no, to an extent. Um, but I don't think Calvin, Calvin would, of course, not deny philosophy and philosophy's use altogether. Uh, he just wouldn't do that. And that's apparent in the first book of the Institutes. Um, that's apparent in his commentaries on relevant sections of Scripture. Um, but would the Reformed understand natural theology or the philosophy of the pagans as a preparatio Evangelium or a preparation for the gospel, and there's there are mixed opinions I think in 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 the reform in the early reformed community and the Puritans and so on. But I think John o, uh, not John Owen, but uh, Francis Turretin would would agree that um, philosophy itself, true philosophy, can be helpful in the preparation for a true theology. Um, so, for example, you have the natural law of God, which Romans two teaches is apprehended as in, in the hearts of men, um, and this law condemns, which would seem to provide some sort of an ethical basis for even desiring reconciliation to God, and then, of course, that prepares a person in God's providence for the reception of the gospel, right? So, like, why would you even care about the gospel if you did not feel or sense the condemnation of the law? Right, if you if you were not aware that you were condemned by your sin, um, and that you were going to have to answer to a higher power at some point, what where where would the ethical impulse to read, open the scriptures, understand the scriptures, and 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 get the gospel come from if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for the condemnation of the of the law that all men can be aware of, right? So in that sense. There's a preparation aspect of philosophy to theology, all right, um, and and I think there are examples of where this says of where this is actually of where this actually plays out. For, for in my own testimony, um, was there was there a philosophical preparation for theology? And and I would argue that there was. I knew how to read. I knew how to appropriate grammar. I knew that words have meaning. I assumed all of these things in my reading of the scriptures. Augustine, likewise, did the same thing when he tore open Romans and he read it for the first time and the Lord converted him, right? So there, there, there are things that are either assumed or explicitly known which help 
a person, uh, again, in the providence of God, come to an understanding of the gospel when they open the scriptures for the first time and read them. Um, and usually this is, you know, we need to, we need to, uh, we need to understand this really, I think in large part being principles that are known and assumed prior to ever doing theology that would actually prepare the way for an unconverted person to be converted in the providence of God, language, laws of logic, um, you know, fourfold causality, the relationship between cause and effect, and things like that that people just take for granted. Again, it's it's, it's somewhat common sense to us, in a way. Um, that and those things prepare for theology. Um, I think that you can even see this historically speaking when you see the way in which the world was set up in the first century and just before the first century. You have the pre-Socratics, the Socratics, the post-Socratics. Um, and the way that the world was set up, the Gentile world specifically, was set up prior to Christ, just prior to Christ's coming, uh, seemed like it was, it was just right in the providence of God for, for Christ's coming. And I, I think you see, I think you see Paul, uh, kind of exemplify this fact in Acts 17, where, He's able to segue quite nicely from the um, this kind of monotheistic emergent tendency. I mean, they were still polytheists; the Greeks were, but they understood that there was a chief god that had to be account that had to account for all of it. And the, and this, the Areopagites named it the the unknown god. And, and Paul was able to segue from that. He was able to actually say that you worship this true god in ignorance. He says that which you worship in ignorance right? This, I, him, I proclaim to you. And so he's not, he's saying that they're worshiping the same object as Paul is, but they're worshiping that object in ignorance. And he's declaring that the, the, the fullness and the truth of that object of worship in Christ. So he's able to segue quite nicely from some of the truths that the pagans hit on into the gospel. And so it's hard for me not to see that how in God's providence, there's a there's a tenderizing of the of the of the world of the Gentile world, which made way for the theology of the gospel. Um, and so that's 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 philosophy as a as a preparation for theology. What are some examples then of philosophy in theology? A lot of people would say, well, you know, you can do philosophy out here in apologetics, but when it gets to you know, doing your doing doing your theology, your theology, you shouldn't bring any of that into your theology. And so, for example, they'll say Thomas Aquinas was wrong for carrying his five ways and his understanding of God that he derived through the five ways, his natural theology into his Christian theology when talking about God and articulating truths about the Trinity and things like that. And I think you actually in in, in Aquinas and others, you see a really good example of how philosophy ends up being a handmaiden even in our conversation concerning the articles of the faith. Um, and this, this comes out true, truly as well in the, um, in the ecumenical creeds. So when you read the Athanasian Creed, for example, there is a lot of philosophy and a, a lot of philosophical assumption in the Athanasian Creed that helps 
the framer of the Athanasian Creed articulate the distinctions between essence and persons, persons from persons, yet essential uh, identity amongst the persons, and so on and so forth, um, that is all really in the backdrop of the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is a, is a brilliant example of theology proper, Trinitarian theology, and so on. It's great. It's, it's absolutely um, and concisely wonderful in terms of its articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, of a right understanding of the Trinity. Um, and so that would be an example of philosophical language and assumption in, in theology, right? Using it helpfully in the context of theology. I think that Calvin uses philosophy in theology. When he talks about primary and secondary causality or uh, remote and proximate causality, that's a that's that's philosophy that is appropriated from Aristotle. That's philosophy that's appropriated even from Thomas Aquinas, right? So, um, you know, it's not as if Calvin came along and then just just like destroyed the philosophy of the ancient world and said, "Here's a new way." Right, he's he. There's some reception, some serious reception in Calvin, and so even John Calvin would stand as an example of utilizing philosophy in theology. And of course, Junius and Turretin and John Owen, you can find examples of true philosophy being employed as a handmaid in theology. Turretin is an excellent example of a of a reformed scholastic employing philosophy in theology. So I'd encourage especially the first volume of, of Turretin's Elenctic Theology um, for that. Um, page six, I think, is where he talks about natural theology. So that that would be there would be some good some some good gems in, in Francis Turretin there. All right, final section. Um, and we're already at 45 minutes. We've only done two sections here, and, and here are a final section. This is the pagan world and philosophy. So let me just say this, and then we'll close. I'm I'm not going to. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop and 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 ask each of these questions and answer them. Let me just we'll close out by saying this: the pagan what the pagans did. You know, when, when we're talking about the ancient philosophers like like Plato and Aristotle, um, their systems were were false as systems. But like any false system, I mean, you take any false system, Islam, you're going to find some truth in Islam. Uh, the statement, there is one God, that's a true statement on its face, right? Obviously, Islam errs in how they further articulate that true proposition. But you're going to run into to true things in every system. Because we live in, in God's world and there's truth all over the place. And so you have to you have to engage the truth at some point. So every system, no system is 100% unqualifiedly untrue. It's true as it cashes out in terms of its conclusions. And so we say for that reason, it's a false system. But there's there are always sprinklings of truth in every system. So Islam, for example, you know, has truth in it. They maintain a creator-creature distinction. Is there a distinction between creator and creature? Absolutely so, <laughs> right? And so the Christian and the Muslim agree on that truth, um, on the face of it. Uh, and and so in the pagans, there are inklings of truth uh, in, in, in people like Plato and Aristotle. Again, if they live in God's world, they're going to... 
they're going to hit on true things. Inevitably, they can't escape it. Um, you know, when we're talking about natural theology uh, and, and acquired natural theology in particular, you know, we say that people live in a world where God has revealed himself and you cannot get away from that world. It's inescapable. You're going to run into it. You're going to be confronted with it to the extent that Paul can say in Romans 1, 18 through 20 that they know God, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? So, so there, there are truth things in the pagan systems. And so we, 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 what we want to do is we want to just, I think a lot of people, when they use the term philosophy or when they think of the term philosophy, they think, they think pagan philosophers. The term philosophy is identified with what the pagan philosophers did. That's not the understanding of the, of the Reformed scholastics that I've just mentioned. That's not the understanding of individuals like Aquinas. Philosophy as a science, this is where the distinction in the sciences come into play again. Philosophy in a, as a science and what the and how the pagan philosophers engage that science are distinct, right? Sometimes they engaged philosophy as a science correctly. Sometimes they did not. Okay. And so we need to, we need to say, when we say philosophy, and we just use that term as a general term, denoting the science of philosophy, we're not talking about anything that's false. We're not talking about anything that's, that's pagan, uh, distinctly pagan, right? We're talking about uh, the science of philosophy, which engages being qua being, being as being. Its very nature is to engage the truth of the real world. And so, um, for that reason, you know, theologians have said in the past, theologians have said the pagans, what pagans do, which is often called philosophy, is actually not philosophy at all. It's just it's just falsehood. And the truth that they hit on, we could call true philosophy. But much of what the pagans did is, is false. And so we wouldn't even call what they did that was false philosophy. Because philosophy, by its very definition, according to it, it, it philosophy as a science is, is concerned with what is true fundamentally. Right? So, so theologians have, have made a distinction between the, the persons doing philosophy on the one hand and philosophy as it's objectively considered as a science on the other. All right. So that's the uh, that's the difference between the pagan philosophers and philosophy. I think that's a very important distinction to make. It's one that's not being made currently very well. And so it's a it's a distinction that we need to to constantly make and and help each other remember. Um, because you know when when you know somebody like uh, Pythagoras who was a total kook and started a mathematical cult. But when someone like Pythagoras says two plus two equals four, uh, he's telling the truth. Like he's saying something that's true. It's inescapably true. You can't get away from that fact, right? That's a true mathematical proposition. Two plus two equals four. Um, and just because Pythagoras said it doesn't mean it's wrong. So we have to make that distinction between the philosophers and philosophy, true philosophy done in accord with the science of philosophy. And that kind of answers, you know, can pagans know true things? Well, yes, pagans can know true things. Pagans have demonstrated the fact that they can know true things. When you take your car to a pagan 
mechanic and they fix it. They just demonstrated that they can know true things. Can they know true metaphysical things? Some Christians would say, yeah, they can know, they can know true things, uh, true physical things. And we have those things in common, those things which are most common to men, you know, if the physical world, you know, we can, we can know those true things in common. But when it comes to metaphysical things, theological things, they can't know those things in common. Um, and I would say, yes, they can. The laws of logic are not physical material things, yet they assume them, they do them, they employ them, right? I mean, they can't, they can't get away from them. So, um, uh, so, so, so yes, pagans can know and employ truth. Pagans must operate according to certain principles, common notions, we might say, uh, if they're going to get along in this world. Again, you, you have, you know, common notions such as the laws of logic, common notions um, such as, you know, causality or something like that. And, and they must operate according to those things in order to, to live in this world. Now, you, you ask a more sensitive question. Can a pagan, you know, have knowledge of the true God? And I think the, the answer is yes, they can have knowledge of the true God, but do they do true things with that knowledge? And the answer is no, because what, what does Romans 1, 18 through 20 tell us? It tells us that they have the knowledge of the true God. That much is basically apparent. What do they do with it? They hate the knowledge, they come up with something else, right? Um, and so the pagans can know true things. Do the pagans have true systems? No, because while their principles are correct, while even some of their conclusions might be correct, the conclusions of their systems are incorrect. And so we would say that they have false systems. Their systems do not, do not consistently jive with the truth. They don't cash out in the truth, so on and so forth. So no, the pagans can't have true systems. Um, were there true things in their systems even though their systems at large were incorrect. Yes, there were true things in their systems that they did not appropriate correctly or consistently. All right. So um, Aristotle's fourfold causality. Um, true. <laughs> Does he employ it consistently? No. Aristotle's hylomorphism. True. Does he employ it consistently? No. And and this is part of Aquinas's work. A lot of people don't realize that a large part of Aquinas' project is actually to disagree with Aristotle just as much as he agrees with Aristotle. Um, and so, you know, Aquinas is not just a, a an Aristotle fanboy out to make Aristotle look like a Christian. Uh, that's not the case at all. In fact, Aquinas is disagreeing with Aristotle in some of the in some of the most important points of Aristotle's system. And so. Um, but what 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 Aquinas is doing is he's is he's locating the the truth what he perceives to be the truth in in those systems and he's he's appropriating he's appropriating that truth because again it's not Aristotle's truth we're not relativists it's God's truth all truth is God's truth and so as Christians we have a responsibility to appropriate truth no matter where it's found and that's what Aquinas's project is doing so without keeping you guys prisoner for any, any, uh, you know, too much longer. I will, I will wrap it up here. We're almost at an hour. Goodness gracious, 55 minutes. God bless you guys. If this episode helped you at all, please click the subscribe button, the bell for continued notifications and share it around. Have a wonderful rest of your day.